Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 23, The Association of Stress-Related Disorders with Subsequent Autoimmune Disease. This was published by Song et al. in JAMA in 2018. So this is just a great study. It's large, it's well-conducted, and it's one of the worst ways to learn anything. Unfortunately, it's probably the only way to assess this question, so kudos to the authors for trying and for doing a pretty good job of it. Another thing I like about this study is that it addresses something that all of us kind of suspect already. A lot of our patients are under a lot of stress. We know that stress ramps up the immune system. and I think in our heart of hearts, we all suspect that our patients had some stressful life event or perhaps an infection in the past that triggered their current disease, and this study tries to get at that. There is some evidence for that in some VA cohorts and a couple other small, not terribly convincing studies. So these folks went on to do a moderately convincing study that has pushed me more towards believing it. So what did they do? Well, this is a population and sibling matched retrospective cohort study. It's kind of a case control study in Sweden from January of 1981 to December of 2013. Sweden has this nifty population and housing census that began in in 1980 that includes all Swedish-born individuals from that point. They were able to match these with ICD-9 codes for PTSD, acute stress reaction, and adjustment disorder. I think you can probably see where this is going. Once you had that, you just needed to look forward and see how many people out of this cohort developed an autoimmune disease. At that point, you had your two groups, and you could just compare them statistically. These folks were smart, so they did a couple other things. So for one, they looked into SSRIs to see if SSRI exposure was associated with a reduction in the development of autoimmune disease, which is actually really important because it gets to one of my questions about this study, which is, so what? Another interesting thing they did was to create a sibling cohort because not only could they match people with autoimmune diseases to people who did not have autoimmune diseases, They could have matched people who developed autoimmune diseases to their siblings to see if there's a difference between them, trying to control for some of the obvious confounders of this study. They had quite a lot of follow-up, and they looked at quite a lot of autoimmune diseases and have quite a lot of tables. I'm going to try to talk about this in broad strokes and focus on the underlying problems I have with this study. So let's get to it. So what they find? They looked at 7.6 million patients in this housing census. That's a lot. Out of these, 125,896 patients had some new-onset stress-related disorder. These numbers are pretty gaudy, but that's what you're going to need to do this kind of a trial. They ultimately excluded almost 20,000 of these because they had autoimmune disease before they had their stress disorder or because they didn't have enough family information. This got them a cohort of just over 100,000 people who were exposed to some kind of autoimmune disease. This group of 100,000 people was then matched at a rate of 10 to 1 to an unexposed cohort, essentially the same Swedish individuals, but the ones who had not experienced a stress-related disease. So that's their first cohort, and they can compare those. But then, out of those 100,000 people who were exposed to a stress-related disease, they could find 78,000 siblings and use that to make another cohort. Pretty interesting. So you're taking everyone, you're seeing how many of them had a stress-related disorder. And then you're seeing out of those, how many developed an autoimmune disease. So that's your exposed group. And then from there, you're comparing that to people who did not have a stress-related disorder to see if they're different. And then to help with confounding, you're comparing the exposed group to their siblings. 
pretty neat little design. Their statistical analysis was quite complicated and truthfully beyond the scope of this podcast. The problems with this study are all hidden behind the scenes. The stats were appropriate. So what did they find? Well, let's spend some quality time on table one. For those who don't know me, I love table one. This is where you usually see the characteristics of your populations. And in this study, that is so important. The biggest problem with a study like this is that the population who develop a stress-related disorder are different in some fundamental way than the people who don't. That opens up the possibility of unmeasured confounding. So let's look at that. Now the exposed cohort and the unexposed cohort were matched by age and sex, so they wound up being the same. About 60% of the cohort was female, and the median age was 41. More interestingly are the things that they were not matched by. So there was generally less college in the exposed cohort, but that was not significant. There was less income in the exposed cohort, also not significant. They're less likely to be married, more likely to be divorced, and more likely to have psychiatric comorbidities. Now, the reason I think this is interesting is it gets at the fundamental question here. Is it the fact that these people had a stress-related disorder that caused their autoimmune disease, or the fact that they're just different from the people who didn't have stress-related disorders? Perhaps they just internalized things differently. Or, more to the point, perhaps they just got more medical care. We'll talk about this later on. For now, let's talk about the associations they found. So, patients with any stress-related disorder were more likely than unexposed patients who had not had a stress-related disorder to develop any autoimmune disease. The rates weren't that big, 9% versus 6%. That's a hazard ratio of 1.36. Now, overall, that's not terribly impressive, but when you think about it, that's a pretty big deal. You wouldn't expect this to be something like 40% because the rate of developing autoimmune disease is relatively small to begin with. That winds up being a 3% absolute risk increase, or a number needed to harm of about 30-some patients. So for every 30-some patients who have a stress-related disorder, one of them will develop an autoimmune disease. When you put it that way, that sounds pretty impressive to me, especially when you think of how many people are having stress-related disorders. Now among patients with PTSD, this was even a little bit higher. Among exposed patients, 10.6 developed an autoimmune disease, and among the unexposed patients, 6.4% did, for an absolute difference of 4%, and a number needed to harm something like 25. Again, 25 people have PTSD, one of them will develop an autoimmune disease. Sounds pretty impressive. They went on to parse this data in a lot of different ways, looking at age, time since the index date, calendar year, history of other disorders, etc. Some of them are significant, some of them weren't. I don't think any of them are terribly different or interesting. I think this is one of those papers where the headline results are what really gets you excited. The other headline that I wanted to talk about is what I mentioned earlier which is that patients who were taking an SSRI were less likely to develop autoimmune diseases dependent on the amount of time they'd taken it. So if you'd taken an SSRI for less than 180 days, you had a hazard ratio of 3.6. If you'd done it for 180 to 320, you had a hazard ratio of 2.6. And if you'd taken it for more than 320 days, you had a hazard ratio of 1.8. It's kind of interesting. That almost suggests that taking an SSRI after you have one of these acutely stressful events would have some impact on the subsequent development of autoimmune disease. Now that did only hold true for PTSD. So for adjustment and acute stress disorders, it didn't actually hold very well. Now they did do one other analysis that I thought was interesting and worth discussing. They looked at the risk estimates between stress-related disorders and different types of autoimmune disease. What they found is that most autoimmune diseases seem to be more common if you had a stress-related disorder. 
So this holds true for a broad range of disorders. Autoimmune thyroid disease, diabetes, Reiter syndrome, ankylosing spondylitis, giant cell arteritis, Sjogren's, lupus, vitiligo, psoriasis, Guillain-Barre, myasthenia gravis, multiple sclerosis, IgA nephropathy. It's a pretty inclusive list. There are some diseases that are much less common, such as polymyositis, that had pretty wide error bars, and you'd imagine if we had a large enough study, there may have been an association there as well, but this study wasn't powered to detect that. I did think this was pretty impressive. It again speaks to the size of the study, and it gives you sort of a broad picture that it's not just rheumatoid arthritis we're talking about. Virtually any disease that appears to be anchored in some autoimmune process also appears to be more common in patients who have had some stress-related disorder in the past. So I think that's all well and good. This is a large study that addressed an interesting question, and you have to give kudos to the authors for going the extra mile to try to control for confounders doing things like sibling matching. That being said, let's talk about some limitations. So for starters, data quality. Large studies like this are always suspect because they're dependent on things like ICD-9 codes, which is what they used here. Doctors are not great at reporting the right ICD-9 codes, and a lot of patients were probably either missed or overdiagnosed. Now, it's hard for me to imagine how that would have been done systematically in a way that would result in bias, but I think the quality of the data set should always be questioned. They did a nice thing where they matched people by age, gender, and a couple other things like that, but they didn't match by everything, so there were some non-significant but relatively substantial differences between the groups. Now, they're not significant, right, so we shouldn't consider them? I'm a little skeptical of that. Even though those differences weren't significant, they were differences, and I could have seen them ultimately biasing the outcome. The other problem is that those differences, to me, point to the possibility that these were just two different groups of people. The kind of person who had a stress-related disorder and then subsequently was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder might just be inherently different than the kind of person who didn't have a stress-related disorder and then subsequently wasn't diagnosed with a stress-related disorder. That's kind of an abstract thing to say, so let me try to make that more concrete with sort of an example. So say your Uncle Bob and your Aunt Jamie both undergo some traumatic event when they're younger. Say they got in a car accident. And let's just say Uncle Bob is one of those people who's always interested in what's wrong with their health. You all have this family member who's constantly coming up with some new diagnosis and worried about some new issue they're having. So Uncle Bob went to the doctor because he was feeling a little depressed and a little down and wound up getting diagnosed with an adjustment disorder or say PTSD. And let's say that Aunt Jamie said, you know, I'm feeling down right now, but it's because I got in a car accident and I'm just going to push through. And so she never got diagnosed with the adjustment disorder. Flash forward 15 years and let's say Uncle Bob has a little bit of joint pains in his hands and some joint pains in his knees and you know, he's not totally sure what's going on, so he goes to the doctor, and then he gets diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, let's say. And let's say that Aunt Jamie has some hand stiffness, um, and you know, her shoulders don't raise very well anymore, and she has a couple bumps on her arms, but she just thinks that's part of normal aging, and you know, it doesn't bother her too much. So maybe she also would have met criteria for RA had she gone in to see the doctor, but just as she did earlier in her life, she said to herself, well, I'm just going to grit through it, and I think it'll be okay. You could imagine those two cases, those fundamental differences in who those people were, biasing whether or not they got picked up by this data set. In the one case, Uncle Bob had a, was diagnosed with an adjustment disorder. But he was diagnosed with an adjustment disorder 
not only because he had one, but also because he's the kind of person who seeks out these kind of diagnoses. And likewise, that's why he was ultimately diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder. I don't find that super compelling, and I do think there's a lot to this paper, but when that's played out over tens of thousands of individuals in large database studies like this, you really have to start to wonder if perhaps some of that is biasing the data. Now let's play the same scenario out again and talk about surveillance bias, which is that perhaps the people who were diagnosed with an adjustment disorder or PTSD early were also the same kind of people who were more likely to code to the doctor later and therefore more likely to get diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. So let's play our scenario again with Uncle Bob, say he again got in a car accident, and Aunt Jamie perhaps this time did not. Uncle Bob went to the doctor because he wanted to see about his hurt neck. The doctor said, hey, you know, I think you have an adjustment disorder. Why don't you come see me again in three months? And Uncle Bob developed a relationship with that doctor. Now, five or 10 years down the line, he's still seeing that doctor regularly because he has a great relationship with him. The doctor's found a couple other issues that they're working on, whereas Aunt Jamie never went in in the first place and doesn't really have that close relationship with a doctor who's going to diagnose her. Uncle Bob is now being watched more closely because he had that early adjustment disorder. So I think surveillance bias is another big issue with this study. Now, these authors did a good job. They really did look at different ways to try to minimize that. So for one, they used sensitivity analyses where they looked at extended lag times to try and minimize the possibility that this person was seeing the doctor more often. They also restricted it to very severe autoimmune diseases, thinking, you know, no one's going to miss their pulmonary arterial hypertension from scleroderma, things like that. They also adjusted to what they called the estimated medical surveillance level, which I think is a challenging thing to get to at this kind of a data set. But they did try to look at this, and in these analyses, they didn't see any increased signal from surveillance bias. And then last and not least, my number one critique of this study is just, so what? It's really interesting to know academically, but what are you going to do with this information? Say you have a family member who is going through a stressful period in their life. Are you going to tell them that they may get an autoimmune disease later? It's a horrible conversation. Like, I'm sorry that you're feeling down. Uh, you should probably feel even worse because there's a 1 in 30 chance that you're going to get lupus in 10 years. That's terrible. The other thing is that you'd have to tell 30 people that before you were right. So the most likely outcome of that conversation is scaring the bejesus out of 29 people. I think the optimistic side of this, and it's nice that the authors looked at SSRIs, is to say that appropriately treating mental illness may reduce the long-term incidence of autoimmune disease. I think that's a good take. That being said, we already know that we need to appropriately treat mental illness. There have been numerous studies showing that treating mental illness appropriately results in better long-term health outcomes, lower incidence of suicide, better social functioning. I think that we already have a compelling case to treat people with mental health conditions properly. And to be honest, the unlikely chance that one of them is going to get Sjogren's disease in the future is to me not a significantly compelling reason to emphasize this any more than we already do. Then the last potential thing that I could see this doing is helping you give patients an explanation for why they have an autoimmune disease in the first place. People often search for a reason for their autoimmune disease. And I think I spend a lot of time each day answering the question why and not having very satisfactory answers. I've taken some time to step back and think if I would use this paper to change those conversations, and I've decided that I wouldn't. Again, assuming this paper is completely correct, 
and you talked to 30 patients who had a stress-related disorder and then developed an autoimmune disease, you would tell 29 of them that it was because of that stress-related disorder before you were correct once. It just doesn't seem like good numbers to me. I'm pretty sure among those 29 people who you said, well, maybe it's because you had PTSD, are going to look back and say, well, geez, now I'm even more upset over that event. And I'd worry that telling something that may make them relive the trauma all over again in a way that isn't productive or helpful. So I could see someone saying that they find this useful in counseling patients, but for me, the possibility of being right one out of 30 times and telling someone that their traumatic life event caused their autoimmune disease versus the cost of telling 29 people that and being wrong just seems like a bad idea to me. I could see people disagreeing though, and I do think that this is an interesting study, if for nothing else, for confirming something that I think a lot of us already believe. So kudos to the authors for, like I said, a really good job at a really suspect way of getting to an answer. So that's all for this week. Be sure to tune in again next week when I tackle a very interesting paper on what many rheumatologists consider relatively boring disease, osteoarthritis of the knee, and whether or not all those corticosteroids we're putting in there are causing harm or benefit. Thanks again, and have a great week.